This morning we are continuing in our series in the book of Colossians, and I want to start by thanking Pastor Jonathan Valletta for being here last Sunday and teaching us out of Colossians chapter 1 on what worship is and what it isn't. And if you missed that, I hope you'll go online and listen to that wonderful message. Our, our series from the book of Colossians, we've entitled it Supremacy and Sufficiency. And I know that those aren't words that we use all the time, supremacy and sufficiency, but basically what they mean is that Jesus is greater than all. He is above all. That's what supremacy means. And what Jesus has done is enough for all. That's what sufficiency means. And so we're in our series, Supremacy and Sufficiency. Now, I just got back into Syracuse last night about 10 p.m. My plane landed in, uh, at Hancock. I flew in from uh, Wisconsin. And I was in Wisconsin for a couple days speaking at a conference. And uh, I, I like the opportunity to go and to share and invest in other leaders. But this trip was a little bittersweet for me. And the reason why it was bittersweet is because my 10-year-old's championship soccer game was Saturday morning. And I didn't know it was going to be then when I said yes to go. And I'm actually the assistant coach for the team, so I missed the championship game, which is like, ah. But, but thankfully, through the technology of, of FaceTime, I watched the entire game. And my wife, Erin, she held up her phone and just pointed it at the field, and I was just sitting in the hotel lobby just watching on this little screen. Now, as an assistant coach, my primary job is to yell instructions, encouragement, and, and warnings to the team while they're out there. Usually I'm working more with the defense. And so I'm in the habit and in the rhythm of watching and yelling. And so here I am watching on this little screen and they can't hear me, but I can't help myself. (laughs) Partly because it's a habit now, but also because I'm invested. And so like, I look like a crazy person in the hotel lobby, like screaming into my phone, like pass the ball, move, look out, come on, do this, do that. I'm trying to give all these instructions. And I felt frustrated because I felt so far away and, and I couldn't, they couldn't hear me. And I felt like I couldn't get them the warnings, the instructions and the directions that I thought they needed. And I, I thought, is that what Paul felt like sometimes in the New Testament? when he was trying to get instructions and directions and encouragement and warnings to churches that were far, far away as he sat in a Roman prison. And that's where the book of Colossians was written. Paul sitting either in a Roman prison or under house arrest in Rome, and a man named Epaphras that Paul led to Jesus comes to Paul with this report about the church at Colossae, and it's not good news. And Paul sits down to write this heartfelt letter, and I feel like he was kind of like me yesterday, just yelling out to them instructions and encouragement and warnings. Paul was 1,280 miles away in Rome. He was sitting in prison. He had no technology other than the written letter, and he's instructing and warning this young church about some real dangers. And here's what we're going to realize this morning. The dangers that existed then still exist today. And these dangers have the potential and the power to distract us, to derail our faith, and even to destroy our faith. And so we need to lean into what God is saying here. So we're going to read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verses 6. I'm going to read to you um, 6 through 15. I'm reading to you from the ESV. This will be on the screen for you if you need it. But if you have your Bibles, please open up to Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so Walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, 
according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, speaking of Jesus, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God was in Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's not speaking here of literal physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision of the heart. Putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your sins or in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Last verse, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Is that rich? Is that good? What we're going to see this morning is that in this text, Paul uh, writes to the church at Colossae and he gives them two warnings, two very important warnings or set of instructions, and also he gives them a wonderful reminder. So let's look at these together. Here's the first warning, and if you're a note taker, it's, it's, it's in your handout. The first warning is this. If you want to grow up, you have to grow down. If you want to grow up, you have to grow down. Right at the beginning, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I love that, because Paul's saying the same faith And the same grace from God that was required for you to receive what Jesus did, that's the same way you're going to make progress in your faith. You don't make progress in your faith apart from the grace of God or apart from placing ongoing faith and trust in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now that word received doesn't just mean like I got a gift and I'm going to run off on my own and use this gift however I want. The word received literally means it's like a a passing down from a teacher to a student. This year, as I was the assistant coach for Team Lemon, there were, there were some moments, especially in the semifinals, when, when our team won to advance to the finals, there were some moments where, where they did things out there which we've been trying to get them to do for months, and they finally did it. And the coach and I just looked at each other with like shock in, shock in our eyes. There was one goal where they had actually four or five purposeful passes that led to the goal. And we looked at each other and we said to each other, they looks like they got it. And you know that feeling like when you're trying to teach somebody something and all of a sudden you realize the light bulb went on, like, like they got it? This is what it means to receive, that, that we have it, that we get it, that it's changing us and shaping us. And he says, receive Christ Jesus the Lord. And each of those words is important. When he says you receive Christ, Christ was not his name, it was his title, and it means Messiah. And what, what Paul is reminding him of is that, that Jesus, the Christ, He was promised in the Old Testament. This is the Messiah that they talk about in the Old Testament, the Savior, the Deliverer who would come and lead his people into freedom. Jesus, the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better king, the Messiah. But then he says, Christ Jesus. And by emphasizing the name Jesus, he's saying, this was a real person. This was a a historical person. Christianity is really the only faith that that can be validated or unvalidated based on history, because in history, we say Jesus Christ came and lived and died and was 
resurrected. And then he says, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, this is important because Lord, another way of understanding Lord is the leader of your life. And when we say Jesus is our Lord, here's what it means, that Jesus has the right to lead us where he wants to lead us and how he wants to lead us. Our youngest daughter, Madeline, has an electric wheelchair. She has cerebral palsy. And when she first got the wheelchair, they gave it to her in three different speeds. And eventually, even the fastest speed was just too slow for her. So we asked the guy to come to our house and readjust it. So he came and he readjusted it and he, he sped all of them up. And it used to be that no matter how fast she wanted to go, she couldn't get away from us. But now her top speed is insane. I mean, like, I couldn't catch her if she got going on it. And, and the, the, the problem with that is that she, as a four-year-old, like all four-year-olds, she has a mind of her own. She doesn't always want to go where mommy and daddy want to go. So there's a few times when we take her over to Destiny USA because the halls are big enough and we figure there's limited damage that she can do to herself and, and the facilities and people. And uh, we, we let her kind of go and we're always trying to get her to follow us and stay with us, but she doesn't want to. She wants to go her own way and it's increasingly difficult to catch her. I very, get very winded just following her around the, the mall. The truth is, is that we're all kind of like Madeline. We don't like to be led. We like to lead. We like to choose our own adventure. We like to decide where we're going. But when we say, when, when, when Paul says, you're gonna re- you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, he's making a very important point, and here it is. You don't invite Jesus into your life to be your advisor, to be your consultant, to be your coach. When we receive Jesus, we receive him as Lord. He leads us. And the apostles consistently preached the lordship of Jesus more than they even preached Jesus as Savior. In fact, do you know that in the book of Acts, which records the history of the early church, the word Savior is only used two times in the entire book of Acts. The word Lord, by comparison, is mentioned 92 times. The phrase Lord Jesus is 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ is six times. So here's what it means for us this morning. Growing down Having roots is not just about asking Jesus to save us. It's about allowing Jesus to lead us. And let me ask a couple of reflection questions as we consider this this morning. How is Jesus, here's a question you should ask yourself regularly if you're a Christ follower. How is Jesus, how has Jesus been leading me in ways that I wouldn't normally or naturally choose for myself? Can you point to something in the last few months of your life where you say, Jesus led me to do something, to serve someone, to talk to someone, to care for someone, to do something, to handle my money in a certain way, to be a different type of person at work. Jesus led me in a specific way that I naturally wouldn't choose for myself. And if you can't point at something to say Jesus is leading me in a way that I wouldn't lead myself, then you may have him, uh, you may think you have him as Savior, but you don't have him as Lord. What, is, what has Jesus asked of you recently that's hard? What has Jesus asked of you that requires you to die to yourself? If following Jesus has just sort of been super easy for you and you're not having to give things up, not having to lay things down, not having to go against your natural tendencies, then maybe we're not receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. How has following Jesus changed your values and what you value? So summarize, if following Jesus isn't interfering with your life in some way, if following Jesus hasn't inconvenienced you in some way, leading you in a way that you wouldn't choose to go for yourself, then maybe you've not received Jesus as Lord. You're not growing down in your faith. And Paul mixes two metaphors. Paul's like the master of mixing metaphors. And he does it right here in the text. Did you notice? He talks about being rooted, 
which is the metaphor of what? A tree with deep roots. And he also then talks about being built up, which is the metaphor of construction, a building, having a sure foundation. But the cool thing here is that whether you're talking about roots for a tree or a foundation for a building, you're basically talking about the same thing. It's this strong, unseen foundation. Under the ground, can't be seen, but it holds everything up. It holds everything up, and it's necessary. And here's what this means. This is true in life, but this is especially true, I think, in the life of the believer. What you can't see about someone's life is often the most important thing about them. What you can't see, their roots, their foundation. It's, I mean, in this environment on a Sunday morning, it's not very difficult to worship God and to serve God and live your life a certain way. So Sunday mornings is one thing, but who are you when you're all alone? Who are you in your home with your spouse, with your children? How are you growing down every single day? How are you positioning yourself for spiritual disciplines? How are you getting into a rhythm? If just then, when I just read the scriptures to you about five minutes ago, if just then was the first time that you've looked at scripture all week, you're not growing down. You can't just grow down by coming here once a week and having a meal. You need to grow down regularly. And you know, when we think of the athletes at Syracuse University and other places, with nowadays, when it comes to successful athletes, what we tend to see are their highlights, right? Sports Center has their top 10, and we see all the things that they do that are wonderful. But you know what we don't see? All the hard work they put in, right? All the practices, the, all the hours, all the off-season work they put in to prepare themselves for success. I wish the Yankees had maybe done a little more off-season work to prepare them for success, but there's always next year, always next year. So deep, deep roots. Now, what do deep roots help us to do? As we grow down, what does it help us do? Deep roots cause us to do one th- two things. Number one, they cause you to stand strong in the storm, right? Bend, not break. Deep roots. Palm trees have some of the deepest, most far-spread root systems, and it allows them to bend in the storm, but not break. So deep roots will allow you to stand in the storm, but deep roots will also allow you to bear fruit in the right season. And if there's not fruit in your life, now, what does fruit in the life of a Christ follower look like? And we talk in Galatians, we read in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Those are good things. But ultimately, when Paul talks about fruit in the New Testament, you know what he's really talking about? You passing your faith off to someone else. So how do you know that there's fruitfulness in your life, that other people in your life you're discipling, you're fighting for, you're feeding? So where is the fruit in our lives? Who are the people that we are discipling and investing in and pouring our lives into? Christ is our tower of refuge in every storm, and he is the source of fruitfulness. In him we abide and bear much fruit. Now, what's the evidence that you have deep roots? And then we'll move to our second point. According to this text, did you notice that after Paul wrote all these things, he says, rooted, built up, established in your faith, just as you were taught, and then here's the descriptor for this type of person, three words, abounding in thankfulness. How do you know you're growing down? How do you know you have deep roots? There's a thankfulness about you. You're grateful, and why are you grateful? Because you know that everything that everyone can see about you is actually based on what people can't see, your foundation and your roots which is not your strength and not what you've done, but it's Jesus Christ. You're rooted deeply in him. And there are a lot of people in the church world today who want to grow up, but they don't want to grow down. They want to be super spiritual. They want to use their gifts. They want a platform. They want to be noticed. They want to experience things, but they don't want to put the time in to grow down. 
And Paul makes it so clear. If you want to grow up, you have to grow down. And if you're not growing down, then all the growing up that seems like it's happening, it will not survive the storms, and it will not bear lasting fruit. Okay, so that's the first warning. The second warning is this. Paul says to them, essentially, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Verse 8, Paul warns them. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know what I find so, so sort of humorous about this or interesting about this is that Paul is in literal chains. He is the one who has been taken captive, but he's concerned for them that they're going to be taken captive. Not literally enslaved, but spiritually enslaved. And Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, the first thing we have to say about this is that Paul is not putting down philosophy. He's not putting down wisdom. He's not putting down knowledge. Paul was well-educated. Paul used his education to advance the gospel. So Paul is not anti-philosophy. He's not anti the love of wisdom. He's not anti the love of knowledge. But what Paul was warning against here was a specific dangerous philosophy, a false teaching that was beginning to make its way through the church in Colossae. And we don't know if this teaching came from the outside. We don't know if this teaching came from the inside. And we don't actually know exactly what the teaching was. But here's what most of the commentators believe. They believe that somebody had come into the church and began to teach some sort of philosophy that was a mix of an ancient form of Judaism, law-keeping, rule-keeping, honoring specific feasts and holidays as a, as a, as a necessity for salvation, so some mix of an ancient form of Judaism and an evolving um, new form of what's known as Greek Gnosticism. This was not fully formed yet, but it's being formed. And they kind of brought these two together. Now, what's Gnosticism? Greek Gnosticism was focused really on two things. It was focused on special revelation and secret knowledge. That was really what they were going after. They were saying that, yes, yes, the gospel Yes, yes, the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, yes, but also special revelation, secret knowledge, super mystical, like you got to get above all of this and you got to find real truth and tap into real truth. They, they taught that a person must work his or her way up a long series of lesser gods before reaching the ultimate God. So there's some sort of fusion here of legalism and mysticism, and one of the commentaries said this, this, this philosophy was a few things. It was mysterious. It was complicated, it was astrological, and it was snooty. Now, snooty is kind of a funny word, but basically what he's saying is people use this to feel superior to other people. Oh, you don't have the special revelation? Well, I do. Oh, you don't have the secret knowledge? I do. You know what they loved about it? What they loved about it is that there were insiders and there were outsiders. And one of the most offensive things about the gospel is there's, there's, it's for everyone, it's not secret knowledge. It's not special revelation. It's the historical work of the person, Jesus Christ. This philosophy was being taught as, quote-unquote, something more. Yes, trust in Jesus, but you need something more to elevate these ignorant Christians from their crude, baby-like faith to some truly deep things of God. And that's what they were promising. Here's the deep things of God. You've got to get beyond all that and move on. And Paul's saying, hold on. It's not what you know. It's who you know. It's not gathering more knowledge, secret knowledge, special revelation. It's grounding yourself in Jesus. The Colossians were trying to move on from the simplicity of the gospel to more mystical, transcendental things. You might think, okay, well, that's a then problem. It's not a now problem. 
Well, hold on. This week, I just read that um, Pew Research Center just did a research uh, project, and they said that U.S. adults who identify as Christians, so American Christians are as likely as the religiously unaffiliated and the population as a whole to hold New Age beliefs, according to this research project. So this is what they did. They, they interviewed Christians, and they interviewed people who don't go to church, and they asked them a series of beliefs about New Age beliefs. They said, do you believe these? And what they found is that six out of ten Christians believe something that's a New Age belief, and they don't know the difference. They can't tell the difference. They don't have roots. They're, 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 they're chasing things. Uh, 62% of Americans overall and 61% of people who claim to be Christians hold at least one of the four key New Age beliefs included in the survey. Things like spiritual energy is located in mountains and trees, belief in psychics, belief in reincarnation, and belief in astrology. This is still a problem in our churches today. People are not rooted. They're not grounded. They're not growing in Christ. Instead, they're trying to chase after special, exciting, more sensational things. There's nothing more sensational than the Son of God giving his life for you and giving his life to you. That's the heart of the gospel. And Paul is reminding the Colossians, he's saying to them, he's yelling to them like I was yelling into that, yelling into that uh, phone yesterday, Colossians, everything you need is in Christ. I mean, he's sufficient. Everything, do not look around Christ, do not look beyond Christ, do not look past Christ, continue to look at Christ over and over. You're struggling in your faith, look at Christ. You're struggling with anger, look at Christ. You're struggling with lust, look at Christ. You're struggling to trust, look at Christ. Look at him. And Paul is saying, everything you need, the forgiveness of your sins is provided by the cross. He's given new life to you. You should not turn to something else to quote unquote complete your spirituality. You are filled, as he says in verse 10, in him. He's saying it's not what you know, it's who you know. Now, here's a concern for us. What are Christians today more known for? Are we more known for what we stand for or who we stand in? What we stand for or who we stand in? As you disciple people to Jesus, would you you commit with me that we're going to make Jesus the point of what we do and what we talk about? Not our standards, not our politics, not our opinions, not even your doctrine, not your perspective. I mean, we're losing people from the faith because we're fighting battles that ultimately don't really matter. People, if people are going to reject Christianity, can they please at least reject it based on the person and work of Jesus and not on things that don't really matter? We're fighting things. We're fighting battles that ultimately what we need people to say is who Jesus is and what he's done. The entirety of the Christian faith rises and falls on one event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where all of our conversations should be focused. Hey, I understand there are people out there who don't like evangelicals for lots of different reasons. That's fine. But can we talk about Jesus? Did he or did he not? Was he or was he not resurrected from the dead? Because if he wasn't, then forget it. Christianity is a bunch of lies. It's, the, it's either the greatest hoax or it's the greatest hope. But if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, if a man predicts his own death, his own resurrection, and pulls it off, then we need to listen. Then we need to pay attention. And I'm concerned that the church is all about all sorts of other conversations, and let's just be about Jesus, who he is. It's not what we know, it's who we know. So two warnings, and then in closing this morning, Paul gives us this wonderful reminder that's gonna lead us right to the communion table. In verses 13 through 15, let me read this to you again. Paul's teaching us that our life is found in his death. Our life is found in 
in his death. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which means all your fleshly desires were still connected to you. God made alive, this is what it means to be alive in Christ. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? We're going to look at these last two verses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. How did he do that? By nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, two things I want to point and then we're going to pray, point out and then we're going to pray. Paul ends with two cultural references that you and I might not understand because we don't live back then. This is 2,000 years ago, but I want to help us understand this because it's very important. And the first cultural reference that he mentions here is what he calls the record of debt. The record of debt. And in the Greco-Roman world, the record of debt was a written note of indebtedness. Imagine that everything that you owe to somebody, so it's like a credit report sort of, everything you owe written out, that was your record of debt. But not just financial things, but ways in which you've wronged people, ways in which you've sinned against God. Imagine that everything you've ever done against someone else, against God, was written out. Just printed out. This was the record of debt. And what they would do is that when a criminal was accused of a crime and then found guilty and sentenced to death on the cross, they would take his or her record of debt and they would nail it to the cross with the criminal. So they would nail the criminal to the cross, but above the head of the criminal, they would nail their record of debt as if to say, this is why they're paying this price. And that's why when Jesus went to the cross, above his head, it wrote, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Remember the Jewish leaders were furious about that? They said, no, 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 don't, don't say that. Say, he claims to be the king of the Jews. But that's the reason why I said there, because they're saying this is the reason why Jesus is dying, is because he claims to be the king of the Jews. And under Roman rule, there could be no other king but seizure. And so this record of wrong, and Paul uses this word picture to characterize every single person's indebtedness to God because of sin. All sin is against God. And you and I have a record. We have a list. We have a record of debt a mile long. But when Jesus went to the cross, he took your record of debt with him. And he nailed it to the cross as he was nailed to the cross, which means he paid the price for your sin. The debt that you owe, the debt that you couldn't pay, the debt that I, 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 we don't have the right currency to pay this debt. And Jesus said, I will take it to the cross. And as Jesus was nailed to the cross, your record of debt. When Jesus went to the cross, he took your sin. He took your shame. He paid the price. And it's been nailed to the cross once and for all. You don't have to pay the debt. You have to receive that Jesus has paid the debt for you. But the second thing, the second cultural reference here is that Paul says, that Jesus, the God, put the defeated and disarmed rulers and authorities to open shame. Now, what does that mean? This is a picture that all the readers in Colossae would have understood. Because in those days, when there was a military victory and the victorious king returned, there would be a triumphant procession through the streets in celebration of military victory. And behind or in front of the conquering ruler and authority, they would place all the people that they had captured, all the defeated um, enemies, and they would march them through. And so Paul has in mind probably this description that we read from a man named Plutarch when there was a three-day celebration when the Roman general Paulus came back from capturing Macedonia. 
And what they did is that when this Roman general Paulus came back from capturing the people of Macedonia, they built these great scaffolds uh, in the forum and along the boulevards of Rome. Just imagine like a big parade. And it was seating for spectators. And all of Rome would turn out and they would all dress in white. So everybody would come out in white and they would sit in these scaffolds and they would just wait as the general was returning from his victory. And on the first day, here's what happened. 259 chariots displayed in procession the statutes, the pictures, and the art that had been taken from the enemy. So day one is just this long parade of here's all the things we've taken from the Macedonians. And on the second day, what they brought was wagons which bore the no longer needed armor of the Macedonians. So they said, we defeated them, but we've also taken their strength from them. And they would take all their armor and they would put them on wagons. And this is exactly, this is an exact quote from this writer named Plutarch. It says this, he wrote, all newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposefully with the greatest art, helmets thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretan targets, Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows laid huddled among horses' bits, and through these there appeared the points of swords intermixed with other Macedonian weapons. And then following those wagons came 3,000 more carrying all the enemy's silver in 750 vessels followed by more treasure. That's day two. But on the third day came all the captives preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Next came the Macedonian gold. Then the captured king's chariot, crown, and armor. Then next came the king's servants. Next came his children and his family. And then the defeated king himself, King Perseus, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. And at the very end came the victorious general, General Paulus. And he was seated on a chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, holding a laurel branch in his right hand. And all the army, in like manner, with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual songs of triumph and the praise of their general's deeds. Now that's what every reader of Paul's letter would have thought of when he says, God took the defeated and disarmed rulers of the evil one and put them to open shame. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God the Father achieved a great victory over the evil powers of this world. He put them to open shame. And why, did, why does God put them to open shame? Because he wants to parade your defeated enemies right in front of you. He wants you to see that while they still exist, they're defeated. Satan's demons have been sentenced. All of the evil plans have been sentenced to be nothing more than just part of God's victory parade. And God puts them to open shame. This is what it means. We no longer need to fear the outcome of our battle with evil because Christ has conquered, we have conquered, and we will conquer. Your life is found and secured in his death. Jesus paid your debt. Jesus defeated your enemies. He is greater than all. He is above all. What he did is enough for all. Supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And it leads us to worship and to adore and to choose Christ above all other things. Let's pray together this morning.